Hi friends, it's Tuesday and we have an interesting show planned for you. <laughs> we really do. We have presidential <laughs> candidate Andrew Yang stopping by. We have Carlos Maza here to talk about YouTube and online harassment and Raymond Braun to talk about his new documentary, also on YouTube, about the state of pride. You better watch and we'll see you on the timeline. Woo, it's bright it's out so here. Bright. <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. It's Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. It's a Tuesday. It's yeah. day two of the week. You know what I've been really happy about this morning? What have you been really happy about? I came into the office and Alex Berg has Spice Girl swag, but she's scared. I do. <laughs> I really do. I walked in. I got a new little tote bag. It's really cute, but where did this come from? Well, I got it from uh, the official merch of the Spice Girls. Oh my goodness. Uh, as everyone hopefully knows by now, I am a huge stan. And since they're not coming to the U.S. on their tour as of yet... I had to buy some swag for myself, so got a little I'm, tote bag, got a little t-shirt. I'm sure it. you'll see more in coming days. It is, and what is your favorite Spice Girl again? I forget. So I'm definitely these days more of a ginger. However, my favorite for all time has historically been Sporty Spice. Oh, I project all my stuff on an her. Evolution, an evolution. An evolution, you? Mine is Scary Spice. Oh. Forever and always. So good. Forever I hear you. Always. I hear you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Craig Brooks, a guest services employee for Holiday Inn Express, has become an overnight meme for how he handled a customer who called him the N-word. It's above me. Sorry. The best Western is next door. Then, he was immediately canceled. Actor Daryl Stevens tweeted, that guy, uh, the gay hotel desk clerk who got called a fucking N-word and then refused to let the racist lady check in, he's a trans antagonist bigot and we don't support people like him. Sorry, it's below me. Woo, so what was it like watching the story break and then change course about 5,000 times within an hour? <laughs> well, you know, I was really struck by just how quickly the news cycle on this story mm -hmm. went. We saw him become an instant viral sensation where he was being celebrated. And then we saw a very swift takedown yeah. where it appears people went through all of his tweets and everything he's ever posted. Yeah. And just about canceled him, right? Yeah, and yeah. it was something that we noticed even on the timeline was that he was going viral, but simultaneously being canceled. And people were even noting, how are you going viral, but also being your life potentially being ended by these tweets? And what we should note is that the tweets are terrible. Indeed. Indeed. Um, they do say terrible things about the trans community, and he says them a lot, yep. a lot, a lot, a lot. Yep. But the thing that was so striking at the moment was that he dug into them. He, he became did. famous and was like, you know what, I'm gonna be transphobic and you all have to get over it. Exactly, and I think you know, in this internet culture and certainly over the past couple of years, we've seen a plethora of apologies that could have been done better or were really half-hearted apologies. Yeah. So I think this is always a reminder that a really good, sincere apology can just go a long way, but you know, it feels like we're in a little bit of some uncharted territory in terms of how we cover these stories. I can remember more tender times on the internet perhaps when someone would go viral and you wouldn't uh, find out about yeah. their history for a couple of days. You had a minute to process everything. And now, I mean, we're getting it all at one time. Yeah. It's now like whenever you become like kind of famous on Twitter, people want to cancel you immediately. So they were being vetted. And that's a little frightening, I yeah. think. Oh. Yeah, well, let's take it to the timeline. What do you think of cancel culture? Are you afraid cancel culture will cancel you? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. Vice tweeted, a new report suggests a high likelihood of human civilization is coming to an end in 2050. On our current trajectory, the report warns, planetary and human systems are reaching a point of no return by mid-century in which the prospect of a largely uninhabitable Earth leads to the breakdown of nations and the international order. Dr. Nafiz Ahmed wrote about the report for Vice and joins us now. Hello, Dr. Ahmed. Hi, guys. Hi, good morning. So according to your report, or to this report, how could the Earth become uninhabitable over the next few decades? 
Well, this report uh, out from a think tank in Australia, uh, it was written by, uh, co-authored by a former fossil fuel executive in Australia who used to chair the Australian Coal Association, and it was backed by uh, a former Austra Australian defence chief. Um, so it's quite an interesting analysis. Uh, what they tried to do was look at some of the more high-end scenarios of what could happen if we continue business as usual. Um, and what they said is that the problem with these high-end scenarios is that often they get kind of missed out of the conventional uh, scientific assessments because they're just too difficult to quantify. So they argue that actually these scenarios could be a lot more plausible than, than many of us assume. And the scenario was really quite, it was quite terrifying, really. And you're talking about within the next few decades, uh, something like 2 billion people facing le various levels of water scarcity, they spoke about um, uh, the possibility that a billion people would need to be relocated due to the impacts of extreme weather um, and very, very high temperatures leading to kind of unlivable conditions and all sorts of these sorts of uh, kind of impacts that would essentially cause a lot of strain to existing nation states. And, and the report talked about how big countries like the United States and China, for example, could face major kind of internal strain in, in terms of uh, civil unrest and other types of things. Uh, so the basic argument they, they put forward is if we continue on this kind of uh, trajectory we're on, the way in which we're burning fossil fuels, um, it's quite plausible that by around 2050, we could see these kinds of crises converging in such a way that it could really strain civilization as we know it. And so it looks towards saying that you're looking at essentially the end of civilization either around that time or in the years or decades to come afterwards. It's not entirely clear that it's going to all happen in 2050. What is clear is that we can't keep going. The good news is that they say there is a window of opportunity to act. We can uh, avert all of this disaster. Maybe not every single thing, um, but we can certainly avoid this sort of collapse scenario if we have a real emergency mobilization. So the onus is really on, they say, businesses, communities, governments, even the national security sector to start taking action and see this and recognize this as a planetary emergency. So, uh, cool, 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 cool. Uh, I don't feel any calmer or better. I'm going uh, to go home. <laughs> yeah, yes. But you mentioned that there would need to be a large scale kind of mobilization. Um, what would need to happen to change course uh, at this point and how long would we have to do so? Well, in terms of what we hear from the UN's last report that came out, um, that got a lot of coverage, it was seemed to be quite devastating and it said we've got something like 11 years to avoid um, kind of going into that tipping point where we've got too much carbon in the atmosphere that gets us into dangerous climate change. So we've got about a decade to really pull out the stops and change the way we do things and that essentially involves really cutting down our reliance on oil, gas and coal um, in all areas of our life but that also means changing the way that we think about things, how we run our economies, because our economies are very much about you know, extracting all of that resource and centralizing it for the benefit of a few. And what we're looking at is how can we move to a different type of society where actually more people are involved in a stewardship approach to dealing with resources where, and everybody benefits. But we have to do it really, really fast. Otherwise... We, you know, we, we're more likely to have some of those more dangerous scenarios. Mm. Mm. Ooh, well, it is certainly a, a lot to take in. We will keep an eye on this story. Nafiz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
A few days ago, prominent Vox journalist Carlos Maza published a tweet thread recounting how he has been dealing with an avalanche of harassment from far-right YouTuber Steven Crowder. He tweeted, Since I started working at Vox, Steven Crowder has been making video after video debunking strikethrough. Every single video has included repeated overt attacks on my sexual orientation and ethnicity. He continued with, But two years of targeted harassment is enough. YouTube has an explicit anti-harassment policy for a reason. What's the holdup? As news of his story went viral, YouTube announced that they are launching an investigation and politicians rushed to support Carlos. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, The holy grail of many social platforms is engagement. Bigotry and disinformation campaigns are often the most engaging and rewarded due to their inflammatory nature. Some, like Pinterest and Reddit, at least try to address this. Others decide profit is worth the social erosion. Last night, Crowder published a video where he attempts to apologize to Carlos even as other far-right media leaders like Glenn Beck come to his defense. Carlos joins us now to discuss this ordeal. Hello, Carlos. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So what made you come forward now? You stated that you've been dealing with this for quite some time, but it's just this week that we're really hearing about this. Yeah, I just got really frustrated. I've been uh, doxxed by this guy's followers, and every time he posts a video making fun of me for being gay or Hispanic, I wake up to an avalanche of abuse on every single one of my social media platforms. YouTube has explicit policies against hate speech, bullying, and harassment that it just doesn't enforce. And I have reached out to YouTube directly, Vox has reached out to YouTube directly, and for two years, I've gotten no action at all from them. Um, I got a little bit frustrated because I know that uh, it's about to be June and YouTube is about to spend, or it is June and YouTube is about to spend uh, an entire month claiming that it cares at all about queer people and touting out queer creators to dance in front of advertisers and make it seem like they can control the harassment on their platform. And the truth is they don't care at all about anti-LGBT harassment because being bigoted towards queer people or Hispanic people is good for engagement and YouTube only cares about engagement. Ooh, uh, what has been the reaction since you uh, tweeted about your story? Have you heard of others who have documented similar cases? Yeah, a ton of people have talked about this uh, way before I did and have experienced it way worse than I have. YouTube is uh, dominated by alt-right monsters who use the platform to target their critics uh, and make their lives miserable. Uh, it's been happening for a long time. It's been happening since way before me. Uh, the response from people who have experienced this is, yeah, I agree. To hell with YouTube. I can't believe they're branding themselves as pride allies. And I, I heard you have Raymond Brown coming up later on the show. I hope you ask him what it's like to make basically corporate propaganda for a company that doesn't care about queer people. Uh, the response from critics, people who love Steven Crowder, have been that I'm a fascist and I'm an NBC, NBC plant trying to take down a competitor, which is like so dumb. I don't know what to say to it. Uh, but it's meant to distract from the reality, which is that Steven Crowder is not the problem. Alex Jones isn't the problem. These individual actors are not the problem. They are symptoms and the product of YouTube's design, which is meant to reward the most inflammatory, bigoted, and engaging performers. Steven Crowder is YouTube's ideal creator. He makes cheap, long content that tons of people watch and subscribe to. He sells shirts on the platform that say socialism is for fags, which YouTube continues to allow. Uh, he is what an ideal YouTube creator looks like. And YouTube's branding about caring about queer people is meant to distract advertisers from the fact that they have no handle on their platform and that people who run ads on YouTube are going to end up having their ads appear on videos with hate speech and bigoted harassment of queer people and marginalized communities. Mm. And Carlos Crowder and other folks like him have been shelving uh, critiques of what they say as saying, you know, these are just ideas. We're talking about general ideas. What is dangerous about that framing when we're talking about LGBTQ harassment? It's bullshit. Calling someone a lispy queer is not an interesting or, uh, interesting or useful idea. 
Making fun of someone for being Hispanic and repeatedly calling me a Mexican is not a useful idea. It's not productive. It doesn't lead to good discussions. It doesn't lead to an enjoyable or meaningful free speech environment. It's harassment. And anybody with a brain, anyone who's ever experienced this, knows there's a difference between political disagreement, which a lot of people disagree with me on, and targeted harassment. Calling me a lispy queer is not an idea. It's meant to harass and intimidate me and make me feel awful and not want to publish on the platform. And it works, which is why a ton of queer and marginalized creators leave YouTube after a while because the platform sucks and they don't enforce their own policies. And you might disagree with me that this kind of stuff is crappy. What's frustrating is that YouTube has explicit policies that it claims to enforce against harassing and bullying speech, against hate speech. This dude is selling a socialism is for fag shirt on YouTube and they don't take action against it because they don't mean what they say in those policies. They're PR. They're meant to distract advertisers who are worried about the reality, which is that YouTube has no control on their platform. And that's why they have these policies. If they don't enforce them, and it, I can spend two years asking YouTube to do something while working at a news organization and still get nothing in response, anyone who has a smaller voice than I do is screwed because YouTube doesn't care about the people that it claims to care about when it changes its goddamn avatar to rainbow colors on Pride Month. Mm. So uh, in terms of YouTube taking uh, all of this seriously, um, do you think that Steven Crowder should be deplatformed and that others uh, on the far right like him should be deplatformed from YouTube as well? I think YouTube should enforce his policies. And if it has a policy against hate speech and bullying and harassment, it should enforce those policies. Uh, they haven't done anything so far. And I'll tell you right now, there is a 0.0% chance YouTube punishes Crowder at all. Nothing is going to happen because Crowder is good for engagement. And the only thing YouTube cares about is engagement. Well, Carlos, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang and actor DeWanda Y sits down with Chantal. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Welcome back. It is that time when we cleanse the timeline. Woo. Have a little fun. Have a laugh. Which I think we too. deserve. We all yeah. deserve a little yes. joy. In Trump's it America is time for sure. <laughs> for fire tweets. Which is our favorite fire. So let's get started today. <laughs> Brooke, you tweeted. Life changed when I started buying my own groceries. Y'all know how expensive cereal is? <laughs> so I hate cereal, personally. <laughs> but there's something about buying groceries that makes you feel like a real grown-ass person. And I think our producer, Mary, oh, yeah. had the best quote treat of this, where she said, you know, the real flex is having a full grocery cart. Yes. And I just fell out laughing, because yeah. I relate. Relatable content. Uh, a full cart is apparently a status symbol these days, because really, it not only says, like, I have all the coins to buy yes. all these groceries, but also I am responsible enough to get to the yeah. grocery store and then actually cook something. Yeah, and you're also a risk taker because I buy groceries oh, and they go bad. <laughs> indeed, you are a risk taker, a calculated oh, risk taker. Yes. <laughs> Randy, you tweeted, how mosquitoes be looking when you go outside with a little skin showing? <laughs> So my grandmother. This photo is so good. I'm sorry. It's so no. It's so good. And my grandmother used to be like, "Oh, they're biting you because you're sweet." And I thought she was calling me gay. So, oh. <laughs> but I guess it was both. The entendre right there. But yeah, it's like you're a flower. They're yeah, trying you're to a little flower. Well, mosquitoes don't pollinate. I don't know. You I don't. Know. They just I'm like just sweet gonna things. avoid the mosquitoes. Yeah, no more mosquitoes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're going to Fowler. You tweet it. 
hate when I go in a public, go out in public and other people be there. Yes, every morning, Same. every morning when we wake up at the crack of dawn and I'm like, we are the first people in the world. Everyone's asleep. And in New York, no, no one's asleep. It's busy as hell outside. Where are these people out? Like, can y'all go home? Yeah, I feel accomplished when I go out in the morning and I'm the only one there because I'm like, it is so incredibly early. Nobody else mm -hmm. could get it moving. Then I see somebody else walking across the street and I'm just like, rude. You're like, I'm not special. Let me have my moment. <laughs> All right, tweet of the day. Ready? Whitney Cummings, when you call a woman a lot, there's a strong chance you may just be a little. And we like to call that in the streets projecting when you do these things. <laughs> oh, you're projecting yeah. onto people. So I agree. Thank you, Whitney, for yeah. that. Amen yeah. to that tweet. <laughs> I was going to say, this tweet is facts only. Yes, mm -hmm. all the time. So coming up, I'll be talking with Raymond Braun, executive producer and host of the documentary State of Pride. But up next, we're talking to 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm. Excited for this conversation. Welcome back. We're launching a new segment today, The Stakes 2020, where we talk to the candidates running for president about what's at stake. Today, we're here with Democratic candidate Andrew Yang. Good morning. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for Thank being you for here. Thank you for us. Thank you for helping us launch this new segment. It's a really, really special day for both of yeah, us. Yeah, you started at the top. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we are, we are. Always. So to jump right in, we want to talk about your freedom dividend yes. idea. So I think you're very excited about this. So tell us more about why $1,000 for everyone and why not just those most in need? Well, our economy is being transformed by technology and automation. We're in the midst of what experts are calling the fourth industrial revolution. And so my flagship policy is the freedom dividend where every American adult gets $1,000 a month free and clear, no questions asked to do whatever you want. So if you're watching this, 1000 bucks a month in your hands. And the reason we have to do this is that we have so many industries and jobs that are transforming, mm -hmm. and it's hard to even identify who's in need. Either everyone's in need, uh, and we need to, to do something for everyone, really, especially in a way that's going to be politically popular and feasible. Mm, and how would you spend your $1,000 a month if it becomes the law of the land? Well, I've got two kids, uh, so <laughs> it's toys, uh, books, uh, you know, they're a little bit past the diaper stage, uh, but the kids, you know, it's like, I know exactly where that 1000 bucks a month would go. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you yourself went to Exeter Academy, and you have been called the Silicon Valley candidate. What makes you think fighting robots and automation is a message that will resonate with Heartland voters? Well, the reason why Donald Trump's our president today is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa. So if you go to Heartland Voters and say, hey, you guys lost your manufacturing jobs, they say, heck yes. Uh, and I say, look, you're going to lose your truck driving jobs, your call center jobs, your retail jobs, your food service jobs. And they're like, oh my gosh, you're right. And I'm like, yeah, we need to make big moves to help create a path forward for you all. So they embrace this message even more uh, than folks here in New York or on the coasts. Hmm. At the same time, your platform seems to have resonated with young voters without party allegiance. So how do you win a party nomination with that sort of base? Well, it's one reason why I'm here today. Like, we need to get young people excited about participating in the Democratic primaries around the country. But 25% of Americans are what's called politically disengaged. <laughs> and so if you get that group excited about the freedom dividend, $1,000 a month, a trickle-up economy that works for us, then you can actually run the table in the Democratic primaries because a lot of these primaries are open. You just have to show up uh, and you can register even the day of. Interesting. So you mentioned young people, and a big pop part of young people is the queer community. Queer people are more vocal, more visible than ever. So we'd love to talk to you about your LGBTQ platform during Pride Month. 
And I'd love to go to a tweet from Refinery29. Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez tweeted yesterday, Johanna Medina Leon, a transgender asylum seeker from El Salvador, died Saturday after being held for six weeks at a private ICE detention center in New Mexico that was previously faced allegations of abusing LGBTQ detainees. So as president, how would you go about protecting asylum seekers, and especially those that are trans, where we're seeing them die at high rates on the border? Oh, wow, I mean, that, that's such a tragic story. And certainly, that's the, the, we'd, we'd undo the policies that made that even remotely possible under my administration. Uh, so asylum seekers, we need to have a, a process that's not uh, inhumane and doesn't put, put them in limbo or in detention centers for months on end, which is what's happening right now. And a lot of it's just because we don't have the resources in place uh, mm-hmm. that, that we need. That, that's why there are these uh, extended waiting periods. And I have many friends in the LGBTQ community, and what they tell me is that they, they get kicked out of the house at uh, higher levels, they get fired from jobs at higher levels. So they're very excited about the freedom dividend, because if we put economic resources directly into people's hands and they can, can make themselves uh, better able to adjust if they're economically singled out. Mm, and beyond economics, I'd love to hear what policies you're considering. You know, I saw your website, there are more vague, broad, general ideas of what taking care of queer people looks like, but are there any speci- specific things that you're looking at policy-wise? Well, I met with an activist group in New Hampshire that's uh, trying to have uh, junior highs and high schools become more uh, receptive and understanding to the LGBTQ community. And I thought that was uh, something that we should be supporting uh, nationwide. And certainly, my cabinet and the administration, we'd be appointing uh, members of the LGBTQ community at very senior levels because we have to have a a government that reflects our society. Mm. Mm. Speaking of your website, uh, a number of states are walking back uh, access to abortion. And the policy on your website talks about how you would bolster access to contraceptives and that universal basic income would help individuals who become pregnant. But is there anything specific you would do to protect Roe versus Wade or even penalize jurisdictions that walk back access? I am on the record that I don't think men should have anything to do with this set of decisions. And I have a feeling I know where women would come out. Like, I, I think it's ridiculous that male legislators are determining women's reproductive rights. Or we need male legislators who actually take a stand for women's reproductive rights. Yeah, so I, I've also said that we need to protect Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. And there's nothing in the Constitution that specifies the number of Supreme Court justices. Mm. So if it's necessary to increase that number to make sure that Roe v. Wade remains the law of the land, that's what I would be excited to do. Uh, uh, you're right that men should be championing reproductive rights. I personally, again, think it's ridiculous that like that uh, we have a say in what women do. Like I, I say that, look, if women made the decision for themselves, then we have a pretty good sense of where they would come out. And that's where we should go as a society. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier you are a father. You have two children. Yeah. And one child is on the autism spectrum. Yes. Um, how has that experience impacted how you're thinking about policies related to young people in America? Well, uh, it's affected me profoundly and my family profoundly, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'd, I'd actually even say I would not be running for president if not for my experience as the parent of an autistic child, because um, you see just how poorly designed our society and our schools are for people of different profiles. Um, uh, and we need to do much, much more. I mean, I'm in a fortunate position where, you know, like my wife and I uh, are together. But if you imagine a single mom dealing with the same issues, I mean, it breaks my heart. Uh, so we need to create school systems that are much more accommodating for people of different uh, learning profiles and uh, and neurological atypicalities. Uh, and that's something I'm very passionate about. You know, what? one thing that pains me is that I'm not the first presidential candidate who's had 
uh, someone on the spectrum in the family, but I'm the first one talking about it. And, and that, cha- like, that makes me feel terrible because somehow this is something that people sweep under the rug when it's something that actually we should be celebrating. Yeah, yeah. And t- since you're so open about talking your experience with your, your children, I'd love to know your stance on marijuana with children. You know, marijuana is something you support the legalization of. Yes. And there are rec- recent studies that show marijuana is great for young people who are on the spectrum. Are you ever considering giving your child marijuana? Well, you know, it's the first time I've got that question, and it's a great <laughs> one. Uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I mean, uh, if, if my uh, son was struggling with, with something and we thought that marijuana would be helpful to, to him, I mean, uh, you know, we, we're very open about doing anything that's going to help our, our child. That's right. mm-hmm. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, your campaign has become the subject of anti-Semitic and far-right memes in internet forums, and you've received support from white nationalists. You have disavowed them. You've disavowed hatred and bigotry. Um, but you've also been willing to go onto media networks and shows that have been criticized for appealing to white supremacists. So how do you reconcile those two things? Why continue to go on these platforms? You know, um, uh, which specific platforms are, are, are you uh, thinking? Because like, I, I don't like I don't. You consider... go on Fox News, for instance. The other yes. night, you were on Jesse Waters' show. Yes. So I I've been on Fox News a number of times, and I'm on the record saying, look, if we're going to win a general election. We have to speak to Americans of different political ideologies, uh, and Fox is the primary source of news for many many Americans. So if you're going to win a general election, in my opinion, it's just the right thing to do. Um, but as you say, I've completely disavowed any of that sort of support. It's antithetical to what I stand for, both personally and as a candidate. I'm the son of immigrants myself. Uh, you know, I underst- I've experienced marginalization uh, in my own ways, and I want nothing to do with anyone who has that kind of agenda. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. And so our last question is a little bit of a game. So you're very interested in the future of automation. And, you know, we talk a lot about automation and dystopias, that the world is ending. So I'm going to throw out a few scenarios from movies uh, to better understand how you as president would navigate a dystopia, dystopic future. Are you ready for this? Sure. Great. Okay. <laughs> so how would you handle if the world became like Terminator? Uh, well, I, I would believe that I would be right there with John Connor. <laughs> <laughs> You know, trying to send someone back in time so we could prevent Skynet from taking over. Okay, back, go backwards in time. Interesting. What about the Matrix? Uh, I would go around, this would be a lot of fun. I would go around, uh, you know, uh, helping unplug people and then <laughs> like return them to the real world. Okay, how would you manage consent in unplugging people? Some people would want to stay plugged in. This is a great question. This is actually pretty fundamental. This is actually very, <laughs> Consent very, is very fundamental to the system. Uh, so I, I would actually be clearer than Morpheus was and I would say, look, you take this pill, you're going to go back to the real world. The real world is harsh and bleak, uh, and the food's not so good. <laughs> <laughs> Food is the central part. <laughs> well, because, you know, they, they eat a lot of gruel in the yeah. Matrix. A deep knowledge of the Matrix. Yes. Yeah. yeah it was, I mean, it was Are you a fan of Keanu Reeves? I, I'm a huge fan of Keanu Reeves. Did you see the, the movie uh, yeah. um, and Netflix? We were talking weekend? about that yesterday. So are you pro-Keanu Reeves thirst? Um, I, I, his thirst? You know, or... thirsty Keanu Reeves Twitter? Oh, <laughs> you call yourself a Matrix devotee, and yet, <laughs> and yet that that, yet. that account has uh, evaded me. Okay, uh, but I'm a huge Keanu Reeves fan, uh, you know, and pretty much anything he does. Great, right. great. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, and we look forward to talking to you more. No problem, guys. A lot of fun. <laughs> All right. Well, coming up next, I sit down with the cast of Oklahoma. But up next, Chantal is sitting down with Dewanda Wise. We'll see you then. 
Chantal Rochelle, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with actor Dewanda Wise, star of She's Gotta Have It on Netflix. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. So we gotta get right to it. Season two, She's Gotta Have It is here. Uh-huh. Now, did you binge watch with the rest of us, or did you like already see it? Yeah, I saw it like months ago. Okay, so mm-hmm. you're like, okay, so yeah. you're just like seeing what everyone's talking about. I'm seeing what everyone's talking about, you know, and there's like multiple experiences when you're filming a show. There's like the show you read, the show you make, the show that's edited, mm-hmm. and then the show people receive. Okay. Yeah. So you're just like, here you are. Yeah, I'm like, here you go. Here, you're like, all right. I'm good. My job here is done. My job okay. is done. Mm-hmm. Now, our good sis Nola, she's back. She's still finding herself, developing who she is, finding, yes. you know, who she is, what she likes, what she doesn't like. Right. So for you, when you are observing her and you're seeing her, are there parts of her life that you found that you're implementing into your own life as yourself? I mean, it's a little meta, you know, because yeah. I'm an artist, okay. you know, a different medium. Um, but I have a ton of experience figuring out what it means to be uh, a young woman artist in Brooklyn, in New York. You know, so a lot of that, uh, especially particularly season one, when we were deciding like what her side hustles would be, you know, some of those are personal experience. So yeah, there's like a mix of, of some tactile experiences, yeah. but mostly it's just like internal and heart and, you know, yeah, feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing I love about this is that we see Brooklyn, the entire Brooklyn backdrop is embedded in this film. Yeah, it's a character. It's like there. Like I was literally at the Prince Block party. I was like, where, where were y'all were filming? You there? I was like, where were y'all filming? Like, well, you were there. there last time? I was there and I was like, hello. That's great. I was literally like, where am I? That's like, crazy. hello. Like it was everything. <laughs> so what's it like to see the evolving neighborhoods of Brooklyn have a front seat of the gentrification happening? Um, I'm also, I was an urban study major okay wow so I feel like you know like knowing what it's been like historically and how I think one of the greatest tragedies about uh development in New York is like this erasure of culture (laughs) like it's it's displacement it's gentrification but it's also that you know there were mansions like Fifth Avenue used to just be mansions you know and there's a cost Unfortunately, there's a cost to gentrification beyond it just being like, you know, which is huge, but people having to like move and no longer, there's also a cultural cost, you know? So all the things that make New York, New York and attract people to the city are being eradicated. So what is it gonna become, Mm. you know? Yeah, and absolutely. no one knows. No one knows the answer no to that. Knows. Every day I'm walking down the Brooklyn, I'm like, where am I? Where am I? So <laughs> literally, I was just here two days ago. Seriously, I'm like, this coffee shop was not here. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> so you're working with uh, Spike Lee, legendary, who mm-hmm. directs the series, and he's a longtime Knicks fan. He is. As a native, native of Baltimore, has he converted you yet to a Knicks fan? Absolutely not. Not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Not going to happen. Like that today. I mean, Baltimore. You know, when you're from the DMV, DC, metropolitan Virginia area, um, you're. I was like a Bullets mm-hmm. fan. Like, we've had so many teams coming through. Yeah. It's kind of a transient sports city. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew okay. up on the Bulls. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. They, 90s. They, they wouldn't need to be done. Bulls. They, they were out here. Yeah. They were good. Awesome. <laughs> so, I want to talk about your friendship with Gina Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. You two are really good friends. Yeah. You two have just such a really good, unique relationship. I want to ask you, do you two give each other advice when it comes to navigating Hollywood, especially as women of color? Yes, Because I can do. imagine those combos. Absolutely. We give each other a lot of advice, you know. It's, uh, it's very interesting because I do try to, like, keep my friendships and, you know, even my marriage, like, internal. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a very fascinating, like, you know, crash course in navigating the personal and the, like, public simultaneously and figuring out which belongs where. You know, my best friend is Misha Green. She's a writer. Um, And, uh, yeah, it's... uh, 
we do. I think no one else can speak to what we are navigating and moving through, but people who are navigating and moving through it. Yeah, speaking of navigating, you doing it together, you two also star in the latest Netflix rom-com, Someone Great, which I love, which is really great. Thank you. So what was it like working with your friend and like working with these badass women? Because that chemistry, it seems like y'all have been friends forever. Yeah, it felt like we've been friends yeah. forever, you know? And Brittany just like fell right into the fold, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and for me, that the diversity of the movie wasn't passing strange. Like that's what my friend group looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it was so easy. It was, it was almost, it was so fun that when we were finished, I was like, I hope this movie's funny. Yeah. It, Cause it, I, it, I mean, we just it like, it was hilarious. We were just having a blast. It was a blast. And I enjoyed it. I was like, can I too be a part yeah. of the group? It was really, really good. <laughs> and one thing I also love about the movie is that Lizzo is up and through this yes. movie. Like she's like skyrocketing on the charts right now. Yeah. Are you a Lizzo fan? I am now. I didn't know about her before, uh, before someone great. She's, she's really good. She's phenomenal. She's amazing. Like yeah. what's on your playlist right now that you're listening Tempo. to? Tempo. I okay. just literally the last song that we listened to before we got here was Tempo. It's so good. Best. I love it. It's so great. Mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you, you were scheduled to be a part of Captain Marvel I was. alongside Brie Larson. Mm -hmm. Looking back on that, do you look at it as a missed opportunity or just a part of your journey? I consider it a part of my journey. Okay. And I think that, you know, there are so many things that like I can never say you know, so many things that came out of it, um, so many ways I grew in the process of it um, that I, I can't take back, that I would never take back, you know. And for me, I had this moment um, or an awakening when it was happening. I was like, oh, I feel like this is a it's a strange kind of blessing, mm. right? Because it's a scheduling conflict, which is something like I would read about. Yeah. It's something that just like existed like, oh, so mythically, you. You're like, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And I was like, that's crazy. Mm. And it was the first time it happened for me. It happened to be the biggest opportunity, yeah. right? That I've ever had. Um, but I just had this moment where I was like, it's not going to be the last time. Yeah. And I felt that like, to my core. It's like, you will never miss you. It won't. Absolutely. It will not pass you by. Absolutely. Would you consider being in a role like Black Panther, another Marvel universe I would film? love it. I, I see it. I see it happening. I mean, with this jumpsuit, hello, you're the, the, audition, <laughs> the audition is here. Like, you are literally auditioning. Like, so, I think you're casted. This is so funny. I say that all the time. Anytime I get dressed up for something, I say, I don't know what I'm auditioning for, but I booked it. Okay, it's booked. You're busy. I just want y'all to know, this is the role, okay? I'm here for it. Well, Dewanda, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. So thank happy you. you came. All right, friends, make sure you watch this season two of She's Gotta Have It on Netflix now. Stay tuned for my AM to DM. This is Drama Queens, where we celebrate the best of Broadway. A little reminder, the Tony Awards are this Sunday. So remember that. <laughs> right now, I'm with two Tony nominees from the musical Oklahoma, Ali Stroker and Mary Testa. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank How you. How does it feel? It's always wonderful to be nominated. It's always wonderful to be recognized for your work. I'm sure, I'm sure. And also, I will say this for the record. I saw the show. You deserve all the recognition because oh, it was incredible. Thank truly you. incredible. Thank you. thank you. So Oklahoma is a very famous musical. But when I left the show, I immediately thought, I've never seen it done this way. 
<laughs> what was it like approaching the show in this way? And what is different for you doing these roles? Yeah, I came into uh, this production when we were doing it at St. Anne's Warehouse mm. this past fall. And it was unlike any process I had ever been in. We began the first day of rehearsals on the set mm -hmm. and just speaking the lines. And so often Oklahoma, a lot of the book, the scenes in between the songs are skimmed over and they're not actually addressed. And Daniel Fish, our director, has just done such a beautiful job in bringing out all of the truth and the darkness mm -hmm. in this script. Mm -hmm. What about for you? Well, I've been with it since the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I'm very used to the process and just exploring, just trying to make sense of each line and mm -hmm. trying to find a backstory that makes sense. And, um, and it's the kind of work I enjoy doing the most. So uh, it doesn't feel like a different process mm -hmm. to me because it's very organic mm -hmm. and I adore Daniel. So... Um, and it's a wonderful company of actors, so um, it, it feels very natural and very normal. I've never seen a production of Oklahoma, mm. but I can glean that it's, uh, ours is a very different. It is different <laughs> on, on yes. very, uh, many levels, but one level that I enjoyed the most was the food. So during intermission, <laughs> yeah. y'all serve food. Yeah. So who cooks this food? Is uh, it actually the prop? No. No, it's caterers. <laughs> oh, really? It's every so night, and they you, have a When I do make... Uh, a mixture of cornbread in the mm -hmm. beginning of the show, but you wouldn't really want to eat that. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, yeah. I was wondering, I was like, how do they bake this so quick? Like, they are out here acting and yeah, making cornbread? No, no, no. That's amazing. I it? know. So what else is amazing about the show is that it has eight nominations for Sunday. But this is, how many times have you been nominated now? Three? This is my third time, third. Yes, So does yeah. it get tired of being so amazing and winning? No. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> no, it's wonderful to get dressed up and find something fabulous to wear and, uh, and be with, the wonderful thing about it is being with all of the other actors who are all friends of mine, mostly from other shows. And that camaraderie and seeing your fellow people like Brooks Eschmantkis, mm -hmm. who I've known for years, and, and being at parties with him and going, can you, you know, can you believe this? It's great, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Uh, it's wonderful. It's mm -hmm. just really wonderful. And Allie, you recently got an award yourself, the, the yes. Desk Award. Yes, right? yes, I won the Drama Desk. The Drama Desk Award. Yeah. Um, what was it like giving that acceptance speech? And I have to ask, because I know that you come from the Glee world, have you been practicing this speech your whole life? No, I have not. And I was most nervous about if I were to win, what I was going to say. But I also just had no idea what it was going to feel like. I've never won an award for theater. Mm -hmm. You know, like for sports, I used to horseback ride. Mm -hmm. But like for theater, it's a little bit different. And when my name was called, I screamed. Mm. I was like, ah! <laughs> then I came out and I did this really sort of weird dance out on the stage, but I was very excited. We were very excited for it, too. I mean, thank I, you. I was so excited yeah. when I found out today. Thank it's, you. It's a huge, huge thing. And something about your character in the show that I love the most is that I've always wanted to be that girl. She's the most desired. Men are literally fighting. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like to play a sex siren on, on the stage? Ooh. Well, I think what is so fun about playing Ado Annie every night is that she does not apologize for what she wants wants mm -hmm. and she pursues her wants and her desires the entire show for three hours and um you know I work with two different guys mm -hmm. and uh it's been so fun finding the physical um world that mm -hmm. that we we have and the intimacy oh. and can't say no is just such a blast 
to sing. It's such a fun song. And um, it really is her anthem, yeah. you know. Oh, my hair looks good. I just saw it too. <laughs> yes. You both look great. Hair looks good. glowing, yeah. glowing. Did you do a lot of training for all the athleticism before the show? Because watching all of you run around, but especially you were running from man to man. When I'm running after a man in a bar, it's tiring. <laughs> You're doing it on stage many times a week. I love it. <laughs> what was training like? What's so cool about doing eight shows a week is after a while, your body just knows how to do it yeah. and you just become used to it. So, yeah, in the beginning during previews, I remember after Farmer and the Cowman mm-hmm. coming off stage and being like totally winded mm-hmm. and being really out of breath. And then after a few weeks, it's like your body knows how to do it. Mm. And you yeah. get into, sh- I call it show shape. Show shape. You yeah, know? it's really true. <laughs> I love that. I should ask the Temptations that because they run a lot. Oh, yeah. Like, you, what are you, Beyonce training every day? It's <laughs> show shape. It's, it's show shape. That's good. I like that. Yeah. So you both are nominated in the same category. Mm-hmm. And I know you're dear friends and you've been a mentor for, for Allie. Um, what is that like going into the show knowing that you are each other's competition but each other's family? You know, I don't look at it as competition. I'm pretty sure Allie's going to get it. So I'm very no, happy. No, no, listen. I'm very happy for her. I'm very happy mm. for all my friends in mm-hmm. that category. It could go, actually, it could go anyway. But, um, uh, you know, it's, you cannot, it's not a competition. It's a, a community. You know what I mean? And the people who suffer the most make it a competition. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so uh, it's just about enjoying it and, and reveling in the community of people who are recognized because there's a whole lot of people who are brilliant who aren't recognized. So you can't say, you know, "Mm -mm," you can't go there. You just have to enjoy it and, you know. Yeah, and the nomination is just such just beautiful recognition. It's lovely. And then they bring together this community. You know, this is the first time I've ever done this. But for me, I've looked up to Mary. I've looked up to all these people that are nominated for my entire career and my life mm-hmm. since I got oh. into theater. And so it just feels so, um, like, like pinch me, please, that I have arrived in this place. Mm-hmm. And the nomination to me is like a part of winning, yeah, you know? It's, it's and and then, really nice. and then we, uh, you know, my boyfriend and I keep talking about, you know, the night of the Tonys. There's no such thing as losing. You know, either you arrive mm-hmm. and you'll get it mm-hmm. or you leave and you're the same person. Exactly. And you get to do the show eight mm. times a week. There's the prize. It's, it's quite magical. It's kind of like you get to do what you love and you're also getting recognized for what exactly. you love. Exactly. Yeah. So you I get to wear a great dress. That too. And, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Gowns yeah. are everything for that. Have you yes. got gowns yet? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh my God, I can't wait oh, to see sad. that. Wait. <laughs> so you speak of love of each other and I'd love to test you both. It's a little, little game. Okay. So I'd love to hear from each of you three words that you describe the other person. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Allie, you seem very ready for this. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. okay. Fierce, loving, and extraordinarily talented. Oh, that's mm. so sweet. Two words at the end. You're extra special. <laughs> okay. I, I have to think about this, actually. I can't let the... Allie's extraordinary... Okay, the words. Extraordinary. Um, role model. That's two words, but... It's fine. And... You know, brilliantly talented. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I will say that you're... <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> well, I must say that you're both brilliantly talented, and Thanks. I cannot wait to see you perform on Sunday at the Tony. So thank, thank you so much you. for spending Thank you very much for having thank us. Thank you for it's having been lovely. Lovely. Of course, and thank you for being here. So again, the, the Tony's are this Sunday, and if you haven't seen the seen the show, excuse me, I almost burped in front of you. I'm so That's sorry. That's all right. Honey. Uh, definitely check out the Rogers and Hammer Signs, Oklahoma, <laughs> at the Circle in the Square Theater. Up next, I speak with Raymond Braun about the state of pride. Stay tuned. Oh, 
Welcome back. I'm here with Raymond Braun, executive producer and host of the documentary State of Pride. How are you, my dear friend? I am so happy to be in your new show. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, thank you. And I'm so excited for you because I was at the premiere in you South were. by Southwest. At the Zach Theater. At the in Zach Austin, Theater. Texas. It was named after me. Exactly. No, that was so sweet of you to be there. It was incredible. It was incredible. So I've known personally and professionally that this has been a dream of yours to do this film for a while. Yes. Um, so tell us about the film and why this has been such a passion project for you. Thank you. So <laughs> I grew up in a small rural conservative town in Northwest Ohio. Like I say in the documentary, mm -hmm. my hometown growing up was a population of about a thousand people. Mm -hmm. And I think like so many LGBTQ kids who do live in rural small towns, I didn't see any representation physically in my mm -hmm. community that I could relate to or connect with. There was no one who was out and proud. And so it was really those early images of pride and of LGBTQ people sharing their stories on the internet and mm -hmm. through social media that gave me that lifeline and that sense of hope. And so after I went to college and studied about how people use social media and digital tools for organizing and community building, I was really passionate about trying to give back in some way. Mm -hmm. And I've always been fascinated by subcultures and by pride as almost like this looking glass into the entire LGBTQ community, meaning we can pick anywhere on the map and ask a couple of questions. Yeah. Do they have a pride? If they do, who feels included and excluded? Who's on the board? Who gets to march? How involved are corporations? And the list goes on. Mm. And then if they don't have a pride, the question is, well, why not? And so I just felt like it was a fascinating way to look at what's happening in the mm -hmm. country right now, um, both within and outside of our LGBTQ community. Yeah, for sure. And what I loved about the film is that you go to cities where one doesn't think about pride. You you know, usually people think Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but you were in small towns. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you selected these places and what was it like meeting folks on the ground, really making major change? It was like a massive Tetris puzzle. We, <laughs> I had so much fun researching it along with our incredible team, but we basically had this massive spreadsheet doc of every pride that we could possibly find, including like first and second year prides. Mm -hmm. And we really wanted to lead with stories. The whole point of the documentary is to tell LGBTQ stories mm -hmm. and represent as much diversity from the community as we can through the lens of that person's experience at Pride. And yeah. so it was stories first and then location second in the sense mm -hmm. that if we found a huge gem of a story, it was like, okay, well, when's your Pride and how can we see if we can make this yeah. work? With Tuscaloosa in particular, given that there is so much attention on kind of the politics of Alabama mm -hmm. and how it's perceived as one of the most homophobic and uh, transphobic areas in the country, we thought that that would be a really interesting inquiry for Pride because to your point, no one expects that there would be a pride in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, mm -hmm. and wanted to show how meaningful it was for the community there. Mm -hmm. You know, in its first year, Tuscaloosa Pride had 50 people there. And we were so curious how many would show up, whether it would be protested. Mm -hmm. There were lots of questions leading in, but at the end of the day, we had some really powerful stories there. Darinisha Duncan Boyd, mm -hmm. who is an incredible um, trans activist and runs a resource group for trans women of color, really wanted to highlight her and so many others who were in the area. For sure, for sure. And just this week, we heard a story, I don't know if you were familiar with this, but in Ohio, there was a drag event canceled. Yes. Um, were you hearing stories like that on the ground where there was actual, you know, blocking of celebrating pride? Yes, there are situations in Alabama and really in a lot of the states we researched where the pride, whether or not there was going to be a pride, came down to a city council vote, mm -hmm. or there was some mayor who was deciding whether or not there could be a pride. And so we see those debates playing out across the country right now. And as you mentioned, a lot of debates around drag queen's role in mm -hmm. civic participation. I think yeah. you know where I stand yes. on that one. <laughs> um, and so, yes. And I think that most recently, 
you know, the Arthur episode where mm-hmm. there is a same-sex or a gay, you know, marriage the being rats, between rats. two men, the gay rats, mm-hmm. exactly. Gay rats. They were trying to censor that in Alabama, and I believe mm-hmm. they succeeded. And so I think that just underscores the importance of a doc like this. And I mm-hmm. hope that everyone who would be supporting that censorship in Alabama would just watch and see how that kind of rhetoric and sending those signals really damages and hurts people that live in your community. For sure. And you bring up censorship, and I'd love to talk about YouTube as a platform itself. Okay. Yes. So I know as a creator, you've been creating content on YouTube for a long time. It's it's faced a lot of backlash over the years for how it deals with LGBTQ creators. What are your thoughts on the rise of the far right on YouTube as they're creating content alongside the content you're creating that seem to be, you know, contradictory of one another? Yes. And do you think those creators should be deplatformed? Well, in the context of Carlos, who I saw was on your mm-hmm. show earlier, and I know that he's done a lot of work to bring this to attention this mm-hmm. Pride season, I read his tweets, I watched the video that he put together, and personally, I was horrified by all of it. Mm-hmm. I think that so many of us in the community really resonated with what he was saying. And that's part of the reason why it went so viral, because so many of us, myself included, have had to deal with harassment, bullying, targeting, and in some cases, even violence. And so I completely agree with him that every social media platform, including YouTube, should do everything they possibly can to ensure that there is no space for bullying, harassment, targeting. And I've shared that feedback directly with YouTube. Um, I will say that with this documentary, I'm not an employee of YouTube, but I did work with a lot of people there. And they employ a ton of LGBTQ people, many of whom were on the documentary, and they were all really passionate about telling LGBTQ stories and sharing it with people all around the world for free. And Mm so I know that I've shared that feedback, and I I really hope that they're addressing it. Sure, and we'll be watching for that. So this year is Stonewall 50, Mm -hmm. which is like the biggest Pride Parade of all. Tell us about what you are gathering or gleaming from this year. What do you think is important about it? And what are you hoping the world gains from celebrating 50 years of Pride? Well, what I'm most excited about in the context of World Pride being here in New York Mm -hmm. and Stonewall 50 is the emphasis on learning our LGBTQ history Mm. and really acknowledging and thanking the trailblazers who brought us here today. I love that more and more people are knowing the names Miss Major, Marsha P. Johnson, Mm -hmm. Sylvia Rivera. And I think that that's going to continue to grow as we get closer and closer to June 28th. Um, And so that's the first and foremost what I'm most excited about. And I also just think that one thing I'd love to see coming out of World Pride is a focus on prides in every community. Mm. I'd love to see personally more more prides in small towns and at the grassroots level. Mm. Because one thing I learned from Tuscaloosa is the power of having a pride in every single community. Doesn't need to be a huge event. Doesn't need to be a huge production. The first year they had 50 people, like I mentioned, and it still Mm. had a huge impact. Because even if you weren't attending that pride in person, you heard about it. And I think about what signal that sends to the young queer kids in these small towns. Because we both know we're everywhere. You can go anywhere in the country. We are everywhere. And so why not have some event there like Pride that can celebrate that and let people feel included. Oh God, I love that. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. And this has been a long time in the making, both your documentary and us talking about it. So thank you for sharing space. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I feel so far away from you. I want to like give you a hug. Thank you. Thank you. State of Pride is now streaming exclusively on the YouTube Originals channel. Up next, Alex and I are reading some of your tweets. So stay tuned. Welcome back. This is At Us, and whew, we had a packed show today. It was a lot. We contain multitudes. Yes. Just like Twitter, I think. Yes, we're everywhere for we you. We are everywhere. At all times. At all times. <laughs> well, we wanted to know what you think about cancel culture and if you thought you would be canceled. Emil says, I will 100% be canceled one day. And to be honest, I welcome the expulsion from society. <laughs> you know what I mean? Emil has had it. Embrace it. Yeah. Because you can revive. You can, like the phoenix, you too shall rise. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Jolie tweeted this after our fire tweet about grocery shopping. I refuse to buy cereal that costs more than 350 Wait, it costs more than 350 Um, Yes. 
Yes, it does. Don't you need milk too? Yes, you also oh need milk. God. And let me a tell you, scam. you can get a box of Lucky Charms from Target for $2.99. But if you want the special Lucky Charms, the fruity ones, $3.79, I believe. Don't make the cut. Homophobia. Homophobia It really, really is. Yes. That is all the information I have to drop on everyone today. Mm -hmm. Thank you to our guests, Chantal Rochelle, Nafiz Ahmed, Carlos Maza, Andrew Yang, Raymond Braun, DeWanda Wise, Ali Stroker, and Mary Testa. We'll be right back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. So have a great rest of your day, Twitter. 